Right. Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Booming. And uh, welcome to the, uh, to the first of my Gresham lectures that uh, includes a blind tasting test of food. Now, the lecture, as you know, is going to look at the merits and potential disadvantages of organic food, focusing on the environmental implications in farming and beyond. Now, according to its proponents, organic food production is environmentally benign, better for animal welfare, has human health benefits, and tastes better. Okay? Conversely, the detractors say that the rapidly rising global population can't be fed without using artificial fertilisers, herbicides, and pesticides, that their environmental impact is very slight and manageable, and that organic consumers are being duped by farmers. The global market is approaching £70 billion a year, and it has an estimated growth rate of about 16% a year. So there's a lot of money at stake here. Now, our lecture is going to review the environmental science evidence, look at some of the alternative facts, and perhaps debunk a few myths. Now, at this point, we need to send apologies to those people watching at a distance or looking later at the video who are going to have to imagine the taste test. So what we've been doing here, and people in the room here, is comparing two organic products to non-organic products. On balance, I decided that carrots and biscuits were appropriate for the tasting, so apologies for anybody that was hoping for chocolates or single malt. Um, the audience here in London have tried the products, and whilst they remember their preferences, and you were holding the samples in different hands, I just want to take a vote on the best tasting products. So first of all, we're going to take a vote on which was the better taking carrots. So if you sampled the carrots, I want you to put your hand up if you thought carrot A was the better tasting carrot. And my trusty assistant here is going to count. Okay, and put your hand up if you thought carrot B was the better tasting carrot. The camera, they weren't comfortable. Carrot B had the skin on and hadn't been peeled. Well, that's my inadequate peeling, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they should have done. What's that? 15. Okay, now let's go over to the biscuits. So if you Ah, <laughs> this, is a, this is a split choice, You've only, you have to choose one or the other. I can't cope with uh, people, people <laughs> not being able to choose. Did, was that you? Abstentions? I should have asked. Abstentions. Three? Oh right, okay. Um, let's go over to the biscuits then. Put your hand up if you thought biscuit A tasted better. Science in this is amazing. Okay, and put your hand up if you thought biscuit B was better. Golly. Seven. Okay, now I'm afraid I'm going to make you wait. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, so you've tried the products, remembered your preferences, 
and I'll reveal their organic and non-organic uh, status later. And we'll see if the taste claims for organic food are true, at least according to your extremely discerning palates. Or perhaps those taste things are mythical. Now, myths and untruths come in many shades, of course. Organic products. Organic carrots. These were the ones, in fact, that you just eaten, or some of you have just eaten. Um, myths and untruths come in many shades in relation to organic food and indeed for many other environmental themes. The current media is full of references to fake news and alternative facts, mainly arising from recent developments in the United States, where it's now said that we live in a post-truth society. A post-truth society is perhaps imaginable as one where people, what people believe to be true is as appropriate or correct as what might be asserted using more traditional means. But what we can know and what we can't know are actually quite complex matters, as is how we know it. Some things can be settled by logic, working from the best available data, usually or often scientific data, that has, be, has been rigorously tested using standard scientific methods, typically by peer review, that's review by specialists of a, of a draft of a publication in an openly readable journal. And as I said before, others may be something that we just feel, albeit very strongly, and verify sometimes by communicating with others who feel the same way. Now, some of you will be familiar with this story, I'm sure. The former Chancellor Nigel Lawson's broadcast on the 10th of August this year, on, uh, he made a certain number of pronouncements on climate change on BBC Radio 4 Today programme. And I think it illustrates rather well the, the shifting nature of facts, feelings and opinion. He was having an interview uh, about the recent release of a new film on climate change by Al Gore. It's not very exciting, actually. I went to see it myself. But Lord Lawson said categorically that average global temperatures had slightly declined in the last 10 years. Now, the actual quote is there on the slide. Lord Lawson is chairman of a group called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which is a climate skeptic lobbying group whose funding source is not published. If we divide the quote into two parts, the second part refers to in, uh, uh, increases in global temperatures. And if we look at the basic data, or the best available data collected by NASA and others, and analysed by the UK's Meteorological Office and the University of East Anglia, who've had their own truth issues, actually, um, what he said is certainly not true. Indeed, the Global Warming Policy Foundation has now revealed that the source of Lawson's figures was a meteorologist working for something called the Cato Institute, which is founded by a US billionaire and leading climate sceptic, Charles Koch, and that the figures were simply wrong. So what you can see here is the climate, the best available scientific data for the last uh, 40, uh, 46 years or so. Uh, he was talking about the last 10 years, and the trend there would be in the green, little green dotted line, which is certainly not down. I don't think, actually, personally, that's an appropriate length of time to consider, but if we consider the longer period, certainly the trend is upwards. The anomaly uh, uh, from a typical um, figure around here, if you set that at zero, 
the anomaly is increasing, and it's around about 0.7 of a degree now. Now, he, um, in the last uh, 10 years, as we see, that increases at a faster rate. Actually, if we, take, if we go back to the, the, the late 19th century and compare there, 2016 is the hottest year on record, and 2017 is shaping up to be in the top three as well. Now, I wonder why Lord, Lurs, Lord Lawson either made this assertion or chose to believe that view, but also how widely that admission of an error was read. Now, there was an admission of error. Um, this is the Global Warming Policy Foundation issuing a, uh, an apology in a tweet, but only five days later. And you can see there, they said it was erroneous and it's been acknowledged and we're happy to correct the record. I, I actually probably imagine they weren't terribly happy, but uh, uh, anyway, that's what, that's what they said. Um, so that's the, that's, that, was the, that was part of his quote. So if we go back to his quote again, which is um, uh, uh, the, the bit that I've been talking about so far, is the, the lower part of, of, the, of the quote, uh, this one here. If we go to the top part, he starts talking about extreme weather events here. Extreme weather events. He says, the reputable scientists, reputable experts like Professor Pilker, and as I've said, the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has confirmed that there has been no increase in extreme weather events. And he actually went into that in more detail later on in the interview, and uh, this is actually a verbatim transcript, and he says all the experts say there hasn't been. The IPCC, uh, which is, as he says, sort of the voice of the consensus, concedes that there has been no increase in extreme weather events. Extreme weather events have always happened, they come and go, of course that's right. But let's look at what the IPCC actually said. Now, the Global Warming Policy Foundation were saying that they stood by Lord Lawson's claims that there'd been no increase in extreme weather. But actually, if you look at the IPCC report, they actually said it's likely that the frequency of heat waves has increased in large parts of Europe, Asia and Australia, and uh, intensity of heavy precipitation events has likely increased in North America and Europe, and so on. If you look at their data, you won't be able to read this, but it, uh, I'm going to focus in on a little bit of it in a second. This is a tabulation taken from the summary, and what we should be looking at is the first column here, which is changes that have occurred typically since 1950, unless otherwise indicated, because that's what Lord Lawson was talking about. He was talking about things that have already happened. And down the side here, we've got different kinds of meteorological phenomena. Now, if we just focus in on that part of that first column, you can see what the IPCC actually said. So for warmer or fewer cold days, they said their assessment was that that was very likely to have happened. We need to be looking at the yellower lines here. The, the ones, these two, the blue and the red, are related to um, different, uh, different mathematical models. So warmer days, fewer cold days and nights, very likely to have increased. Uh, there's another very likely, hot days. Heat waves, 
medium confidence on a global scale and likely in large parts of Europe, Asia and Australia. And so it goes on. Now, I don't need to have to uh, bang away at this, I'm sure, but what is, what is evident here is that what Laws uh, Lord Lawson said is, or what rather he said that the IPCC has said, is not by any stretch of the imagination true. So perhaps he had his fingers crossed behind his back. I'd regard his statement actually as an untruth of some sort. And um, although with those likely and very likely statements, there is a possibility for interpretation there. It's not very likely that, uh, that his statement that there had been no increase in these events is true. Now, I want to turn now to the matter of organic food and farming and myths within that domain. We have an image of organic food that implies that it's natural, wholesome, environmentally benign even. And those of you, I got in trouble from some American listener to this lecture previously by citing the archers. Uh, but I'm sure everybody here in London knows what the archers is. It's a, a make, for those of you that are not uh, uh, lis uh, listeners, it's a mainstay soap opera on British radio. And it has a cast including organic farmers who are naturally rather nice people. We see, in this country at least, and elsewhere in the globe, organic vegetables, honey, eggs, meat, fish, and so on. They're commonplace in the UK. And there's a growing market for organic pharmaceuticals as well, and beauty products. This is in London, this one. Um, and in indeed, as you see here, actually organic pharmacies. Um, the soil... Uh, the UK Soil Association recently invited, invited people to participate in Organic September. I don't know whether you did. Um, I have to say I didn't, but uh, perhaps some people did. We should remember, though, that not all natural products are benign. Uh, one only has to think about the Athenian state's hemlock infusion, which was likely to have been organic, but it nevertheless killed Socrates. And we can also buy, as you see on here, organic cigarettes and tobacco, if we wish, although actually legally, oddly, they can't be described as natural, apparently, and they, of course they're likely to be lethal in the longer term. If you want to take things to extreme, you can even buy the rolling papers to go with them or with other smoking substances, uh, also organic and apparently originally made from the same paper that was used for printing Bibles on. So what I'm saying here is there's no direct equivalence between natural or organic and human well-being. Some natural products, of course, belie the fact that they're not natural. This was on a hotel, uh, toiletry in a hotel I saw, which it doesn't actually say it's organic, but it says it's pure, uh, gentle, natural ingredients. But when you actually read what's in it, it's full of synthetic materials described, uh, derived from the petrochemical industry. And um, there's an even better one here. I really love this one. This is a fuel additive. It's a bio-product, which I would say was willful irrationality. Um, it apparently converts higher molecules to lower molecules. I've got a picture there of what that might look like. Um, it's good stuff, evidently. Uh, it's a fuel additive. It will do all sorts of things. And um, just as a matter of interest, the, uh, the producer is seeking investment at the moment. So if you've got a few thousand pounds to spare, and are sufficiently gullible, this is one for you. Now, having said all that, organic food is nevertheless seen as enshrining specific qualities 
some of which are certified by inspection and labelling, for example, by EU systems or by the US Department of Agriculture. In the UK, actually, there are nine different certification schemes. And unfortunately, the labelling that goes with that sometimes clashes. So something that's uh, organic in one scheme may not be in another, which makes it very difficult to talk with certainty about what organic actually is. And, and just to add to this, and I'm, I, the national press will pick this up, I hope, that's likely to be even more problematic after Brexit. Okay. Typically, proponents think of organic food in the ways I've described here. So produced by low-input, quasi-natural agricultural systems, for example, avoiding chemical residues and so on. Healthier is another characteristic, more nutritionally balanced, perhaps. Fresher and better tasting, have to wait to find out on that one, but with shorter and speedier local supply chains. Um, part of a circular economy with plants and animal waste and nutrients returned directly to the soil. Another four here. Better for animal welfare, because we're not just talking about organic vegetables. Uh, we can be talking about animals here. So low stocking rates, no antibiotics and so on there. Um, not damaging the environment, but preserving biodiversity. So, for example, through heritage breeds is one way in which... That's, uh, uh, that might be uh, evident. The, the good people here at, at Gresham told me that, that when they went shopping for the carrots, they found purple heritage breeds, and did I want those? Um, but we cut those out, actually. Um, and avoiding genetically modified organisms is another characteristic of organic food. Um, seven, I'll come back to in a minute, but it's talking about socially sustainable food production, which rejects exploitative labour practices and is associated with fair trade. And finally, it said that organic food is necessary to feed the world sustainably in the longer term. Now, the point about this is that centuries of debate have underpinned our current understanding of what organic food comprises. Food is an integral part of interconnected and changing social, economic and political systems, as well as environmental systems. Farming in the West, here I'm thinking about the UK, Europe, North America particularly, it has evolved from what you might call some surface scratching of the earth and the encouragement of edible plants at the expense of those less obviously useful, through the waxing and waning of intensification and selective breeding, use of additional inputs such as fertiliser, either mined it could be, or otherwise secured from natural sources, or indeed compounds synthesised artificially, and uh, equipment such as the plough, towards industrialisation, genetic manipulation, and even today soilless husbandry or hydroponics. Faced with that, organic is a highly contested concept, such that debate is sparked amongst those who are concerned about food quality, safety, nutrition and ecological sustainability, and also those people who see that social sustainability relating to workers' rights, which we saw there in point seven above, is also important. 
There has been concern about the health and safety of farm workers worldwide, for example, through inhaling or otherwise ingesting pesticide sprays on cotton and tea in the developing world, and issues about human rights, trades unions, and so on. Um, particular studies that have sparked this off have been done on tomato planters and pickers in Florida, for example, because they have notably poor health, allegedly because of the use of herbicides and pesticides and widespread avoidance of the guidance on their use, leading to workers being exposed to them. The point about this is that the definitions of organic food can be both product-based, i.e. what it is that we eat, and production-based, how it's produced, whether it's produced, for example, with regard for uh, the, the welfare of the workers. So there are two kinds of definitions there. The second, the workers' one, may, be, may include social, uh, social cu cultural and ethical issues which are not evident in the product but relate just to the types of production. Now that latter definition, interestingly, the one about the form of production, has actually tended to disappear in the last few years. It's become much less a significant part of the debate. It's just a little bit of history. Today's organic farming has been informed by the research of two people, two UK scientists in the 1930s particularly. And I put this picture of Eve Balfour up because there are so few female scientists that get recognised, but she, she was. Today, uh, Eve Balfour and Albert Howard inspired the foundation of the UK's Soil Association in 1945. And they said that the health of soil, plants and animals and people was one and indivisible. And they championed organic techniques as alternative means of production to the large-scale industrialised systems that had escalated since World War I, and which, but which had delivered stable food supplies at lower prices, albeit at the expense of family farms. Now, Balfour, Howard and, and their colleagues, they were particularly <laughs> concerned about the environmental implications of the use of synthetic chemicals. And they cited depleted soil fertility, nutrient runoff and water system pollution from farm waste as being problematic. Their ideas subsequently spread to Europe and the USA and they became associated with the back to nature romantic movement of the 1960s where alternative facts were inextricably linked with alternative lifestyles. Initially, you might think that the organic scene is a battle, an unequal battle, between small family businesses and individuals supported by organisations such as the Soil Association and some of the larger agribusinesses, so pesticide and herbicide producers and large supermarkets, for instance, supported by expensively paid lobbying organisations. There's a lot of money in it. The pesticide market, for example, internationally approaches £15 billion and might be assumed to employ lob lobbyists. However, what's actually happened in the sector is interesting. Um, with the gradual growth and formalisation of the organic sector, some larger corporate players, such as supermarkets, have picked up the organic baton, carrot or otherwise, uh, going for a platform of safe, healthy and local. And even chains such as McDonald's, this is a German version of McDonald's, and Pret and Nando's have joined the fray. And there has been some bifurcation of the market, some splitting of the market into 
low-impact organic products that cost less and are sold locally to reduce transport costs versus very high-value niche organic products that are traded across the world. So we see baby sweet corn being air freighted from Kenya to the UK, for example, or Dutchy Original Biscuits. Indeed, you might have tasted something uh, along those lines tonight. There are now huge commercial interests, both in the maintenance and the shutting down of the organic market, and hence the controversy. It's actually even more nuanced than that, because there are vociferous critics, including both those who deny any value at all in organic products, and those who say that the regulations on organic production are now too lax, so it's the old guard, if you like, and that the original integrity of organic has been lost. So there are many positions, not just two. The scale of the global market is, and its growth rate is absolutely eye-watering. From 1990 to 2000, certified organic food sales grew at an average of 25% a year and they reached six billion, by, six billion pounds by April 2000. So six billion in April 2000. By 2013, they'd reached 27 billion. Both, most of that was food, but by 2012, the total organic market was about 50 billion pounds, including things like cotton um, and some of these pharmaceuticals. Today, 2017, it's about 70 billion pounds. So it's a truly extraordinary growth rate. If you'd had money in the stock market in that area, you would have done very well indeed. In the US, organic food is now about 4% of all, UK, uh, all US sales, with 2 million producers globally. Business is booming, and again, the estimated compound future growth rate annual growth rate is 16% a year, according to US consultancy TechSci Research. You'll probably be aware, if you keep an eye on the press, that Amazon Food are now considering organic food as a principal product, too, of their future delivery service. In the, uh, in the UK, growth was similarly strong, with a five-fold increase in value from 1995 to 2000 as people bought more and more food. But UK organic acreages make up only about 4% of the EU organic area, which is not a great proportion. And the pictures, uh, it's, that's in there, that's the UK's proportion of the total. It's very small, much smaller than our uh, land area would suggest. And um, if we look at DEFRA diagrams about what's happened recently, you'll see a shift here around about 2009. So whereas the UK land area given over to organic agriculture peaked in 2009, it's declined considerably since then. So here we have the peak. The, the small pieces on the top there are things that are moving towards or converting towards organic. It takes a couple of years, or three years actually, if you have uh, things like apple trees, um, to get the accreditation. So it's failing, it's falling. And of that, most of it is not vegetables. Most of it is permanent pasture. So upland sheep, uh, and to a lesser extent, dairying and, and pigs. You can see um, that if you look at the different types of land, this is land, pasture land, um, 
the area of organic sheep has dropped very significantly since 2011. Um, cattle, roughly stable, and pigs has dropped very slightly as well, but it's, the amount is very small. Um, and if we look at plants, you can see here, again, drops since 2009 in things like cereals uh, and vegetables and other arable crops. Now, perhaps, one could argue, perhaps consumers are, UK consumers are becoming more sceptical. Simultaneously, however, the Soil Association reporting this year said there'd been strong growth in the demand for organic food and its value had, its value had grown 7.1% in 2016 alone. Now, the proportion of food in, uh, organic food in the UK is actually very small. It's only 1.5%. You may remember the figure for the, the states was 4%. But the growth that seems to be suggested by the Soil Association and what you see in terms of the land areas don't square up in a, in a simple way. Though, in my estimation, it's unlikely that either of those organisations is actually lying. The possible explanations are, I can think of at least four. One might be that the, there's been a dramatic improvement in the yields of organic crops and livestock, i.e. more organic produce per hectare. Another possibility is food is being sold as organic that actually isn't. The third possibility is that there's been a huge hike in the value of organic products. And the fourth, which in my view is much more likely, is that there's been a dramatic increase in the volume of imported organic produce from beyond the UK. Now, why people are buying organic produce at a substantial price premium over conventionally produced food is open for discussion. Are they just, as you might, uh, might be, might be characterised by some of our media, upper-class hippies, foodies, believers in homeopathy, allotments and the women's movement, with more money than sense? That's a joke, by the way, in case this is picked up later. There's no doubt that concern about nutritional status of food has been a major driver, particularly for children's diets amongst more affluent consumers. Sorry, that's the number of producers also dropped in the UK. Tesco, for example, have recognised that. They, see, uh, they say that their consumers, um, their customers, sorry, see organic food as healthier um, and um, they, they, they see it as a healthier choice. Now, recent years have seen some horrific global scares that may have reduced trust in mainstream food products. So, for example, in 2008, just before that decline, there was uh, melamine, a component of some plastics, found in Chinese baby milk formula, and allegedly 300,000 cases of illness and several deaths, and the melamine had been added intentionally to increase the apparent protein content of the powder. That doesn't inspire trust. But, we're not, uh, but the Chinese are not alone. In the UK, feeding of ruminant animals on cheap recycled rations, including reclaimed meat and bone meal, was responsible for the generation and transmission of bovine spongiform encephalopathy in cattle and variant CJD in humans, which was also a health catastrophe. The cost at that time was put by Farmers Weekly at £4.5 billion, um, plus the emotional cost to victims and their families. 
That too must have given some impetus, you'd think, to organic production systems that required more careful traceability of food. Possibly consumers want to be closer to the soil and nature, and there's no doubt that many organic food consumers believe that their food is produced with less environmental damage than conventional farming, and that also that conventional agriculture receives hidden subsidies that make it appear cheaper to produce than organic food, while its true cost is hidden. Now, let's go back. Oh, sorry, yes, there we are. C Canadian survey, 34% of purchasers of organic food believe organic food is better tasting and more nutritious, and so on. And they also believe that no pesticides are used in its production. Now, I want to just take, oh, sorry, and then we get these wonderful statements like this one. This is uh, about tomatoes, and you read it, and you feel good about it. This is somebody describing organic, fresh tomatoes, warm, sunny, succulent, complex, musky, volatile aroma. It's like a wine description, isn't it? Um, and, and easy to produce, it says, and based on 50 years of research. Okay. Now, let's just look at some of these assertions, those eight assertions that I raised earlier, and think about whether they are lies or untruths or misrepresentations of some sort. Produced by low-input uh, low quasi-natural agricultural systems and so on. This is a huge and complex area, and I can only really summarise this very briefly. If we took the last element, less dependent on fossil fuels and their derivatives. Um, ore farming uses fossil fuel currently, and the research to establish which systems use most is not, to my knowledge, conclusive, even though we do know that synthetic fertiliser production is a major consumer of energy and fossil fuels. It might be assumed that the actual production of organic food uses less fossil fuel if it uses less synthetic fertiliser, but we would have to add transport, processing and storage systems for food into the equation as well. And at the point that you do that, the whole life outcomes are not nearly as clear-cut. If we look in more detail just at pesticides, again to which reference is made here, that might be clearer perhaps. Any kind of farming, in any kind of farming, large areas of a single species are not a natural ecological situation, and they're going to require some form of intervention if they're to be maintained free of pests, such as hungry insects. Since World War II, tens of thousands of new chemical compounds have been developed, and many are used in agriculture. Indeed, initially, it appeared that some agrochemicals were actually stockpiled wartime chemicals, humanicides, you might say, rather than insecticides, reformatted into pesticides and used in smaller doses. Naturally, pest resistance developed rapidly, and today, more than 500 insect pest species are known to be resistant to one or more insecticides, Hence, conventional farmers are encouraged to increase the dose to compensate for weaker performance. The allegation from the organic lobby is that that damages soil communities, microbes and earthworm populations and slows the decay of organic matter. And, as a consequence, the natural populations of pest predators in and above the soil fall, further increasing the reliance on chemical intervention 
to slow the attacks on plant monocrops in a kind of escalating agrochemical treadmill. In the Guardian newspaper this month, George Monbiot went, went even further, describing an ecological meltdown, insectageddon, he called it, uh, resulting from the massive agriculturally driven declines in bees, hoverflies and other pollinating insects. He asserts that continuation of that trend would be an ecological catastrophe where insect pollinated crops will remain unpollinated because of the unintended consequences of pesticides and that is a worse and more immediate existential threat than global warming, which is an interesting proposition. Organic farming systems tend to rely on prevention rather than cure, certainly reducing the use of pesticides in part by using predatory insects, lacewings and so on, and biological control agents which eat the insect pests rather than synthetic sprays. But unknown to many people, many organic certification schemes also permit the use of some pesticides, though the extent of that has waxed and waned over time. For example, copper sulphate, which is toxic, was permitted to be used against fungal diseases such as potato blight, which is endemic in the UK, although it was banned in 2002. And in the UK today, in fact, no herbicides at all are to be used in organic systems, and there is an inspection, a rigorous inspection scheme. In the USA, 200 chemical additives are allowed, including some antibiotics such as streptomycin, the stuff that's found in throat tablets, it's allowed to be used on apple trees, at least it was until 2014, and there are others too. And when you start to look at imported organic, supposedly organic products, like, for example, Chinese organic apple juice, it contains very significant traces of pesticides. A major study in 2002 by the Soil Association found that half of the UK fruit and vegetable samples contained pesticide residues and that safety had not been established for most of those because they appeared in cocktails. Coming closer to, to today, a Stanford University study in 2012 found pesticides in 38% of conventionally produced food in the United States and also in 7% of the organic food. So organic food is not always pesticide free and indeed some small doses arrive as a result of spray drifting in the air from adjacent non-organic farms. The figures were a bit higher in Canada. Uh, in Canada, 2012, half of all organic fresh fruit and vegetables contained pesticide residues according to their food inspection agency. 28, uh, sorry, half, so 50%. It has to be said, though, that 78% of the non-organic crops were similarly affected. But there's not a very big difference, in fact. Now, setting aside the issues for soil health, to which I'll return in a minute, we might ask ourselves if this matters for human health. Trying to control nature is a very lucrative business, and perhaps we are allowing a few large chemical companies, such as Monsanto and Syngenta, to poison us for the sake of their profits. One point of view says that the results of pesticide applications on human health are clear, but that they have been withheld 
intentionally buried, selectively promoted, or simply ignored, something close to lying. Now, I don't have time today to go through all the different um, uh, issues with pesticides. There are no known safe limits for ingesting most of those compounds, and we, and we do it when we eat the skin of sprayed vegetables or the husks of cereal grains. But the long-term implications on human health haven't been clearly established because it's difficult to do controlled trials. You can't dose children with pesticides to see what happens. So as a consequence, we rely mainly on examining the spatial variability of particular exposures on complaints. Now again, I'm not going to go through all of the, uh, all of the things that uh, have been flagged up as potential issues. Some of them on the slide here from some research by Francis in 2012. Um, rest, uh, pesticide residues have been found in some really shocking places, for example in, in uh, fetal cord blood taken from Canadian babies. And there are lots of reports of excess miscarriages and birth defects and so on, impaired ability. Um, impacts on human health and well-being are all, uh, sorry, adult health and well-being are also cited. Reductions in human fertility, hormone disruptors and so on. Um, we certainly know, for example, that pesticides affect reproduction in fish, snails, alligators, seals and birds. So we might assume that they impact on humans too. I could continue with a catalogue of issues about pesticides here, but I want to add a note of caution in interpreting these findings. Firstly, statistical association doesn't necessarily imply causality. Secondly, the acute toxicity, the ability to poison of all pesticides used today in both organic and non-organic farming is very low. And thirdly, pesticide residues can now be measured in tiny, tiny amounts, well below the allowable level in any food. So currently, because we can now measure them in such tiny amounts, we find them everywhere. They're not absent in organic food, although they are probably lower, because some pesticides, as I said, actually can be used in some organic food certification schemes. Um, However, US research said that pesticide consumption on non-organic food is typically less than 5% of what they describe as that might be acceptable. So they say further reductions are anyway meaningless. The point here is that the evidence is not perfect. And in these kind of situations, who is producing the conflicting evidence becomes very crucial. Conflicting statements abound, Conclusions are difficult to draw, and the slides have shown some of that. So in that first point there, no form of agriculture is natural, and although caution is certainly justified in the use of pesticides, and organic production has a contribution to make there in reducing the risk to human health, the evidence is not perfect. Now, I have eight points. I'm not going to go through all eight points here in equal depth, but let me just pick out a few points. You'll find some more in, uh, in, the, um, in the transcript if you pick it up on the way out. Let's just look at whether the food is healthier. Um, again, there are some problems here. The US 
Department of Agriculture and scientists elsewhere have been measuring the nutritional value of different foods for more than 50 years. And according to Francis um, and, in fact, earlier writers, this is the Washington Post, um, they found nutrient declines in all crops in all regions over the past several decades. But scientists disagree on why that's happening. And some of them say, well, it's inconsistent measurement. Um, and some people say it's agribusiness's uh, agri quest for higher yields. And the higher the yield, the lower the nutritional content. There have been studies by the Soil Association that suggested that organic food contained more nutrients than conventionally produced food with higher levels of various minerals and vitamin C. They also said it was denser, more dry matter in the food. Um, and so on. German studies showing markedly higher levels of potassium and iron and all sorts of other things, magnesium, manganese, calcium and so on, in organic food. Um, there's the decline um, that I referred to earlier. But if you look at the work of John Krebs's committee back in 2000, he was saying then, and is still saying now as I understand it, that there is no evidence available at present to be able to say that organic foods are significantly different in terms of their safety and nutritional content to those produced by conventional farming. Now, this is clearly more complex, a more complex issue than might, one might think. Caution is necessary. Many of the studies are based on very small samples with inconsistent experimental design. Some of the published assertions may just be lies by those with interests, as we've seen in other scenarios, and others may be selective with the evidence. There's a side issue here that um, I'll just refer to very briefly in passing, that but because it illustrates the point about who is making, uh, who is making the case. Um, there was a, an argument uh, 10, 12 years ago about whether organic food was more likely to give you um, food poisoning. And there was a lot of discussion about that. People saying, for example, that food poisoning was a result of, of, of animal manures being used on organic farms. And you were much more likely to get food poisoning from organic um, uh, organic crops, whereas others were saying, no, that actually that wasn't the case because the health, for example, of, um, uh, of animals and crops was, was, uh, was better, uh, particularly with animals, because they were grazing uh, outside, they were more resistant and so on. In fact, the studies that were done, there was a study done um, in 2002 uh, saying, uh, sorry, in 2006, there was a study done uh, in California uh, on bagged organic bagged spinach and uh, um, a number of people, a hundred Californians at least, became ill as a result of eating it. Um, but, and, and the media made a lot, of, um, a, a, a lot of this, but in fact what, it emerged, what emerged was that the contamination had come from improper handling somewhere between the field and the plate. Um, and, and not actually as a, re as a direct result of the uh, of contamination of the crop in situ. But the, um, there's an organisation called the Hudson Institute that immediately broadcast the fact that Escherichia coli risk was higher in organic food. And um, in fact, they, they are an agency with a potential interest in the demotion of organic food. Um, they, uh, they were... Um, uh, taking funding from the uh, mainstream agricultural pro producers.
Okay, now, fresher and better tasting. Okay, well now's the moment to reveal whether it's fresher uh, and better tasting. Let's just do the taste test results. Now, if you remember, with the carrots, 17 of you told me that carrot A was better tasting, and 15 people said that carrot B was better tasting. I'm afraid carrot B was the organic carrot. So, that's carrots. In the biscuits, 25 of you said that carrot, uh, biscuit A was organic, and seven of you said, that, oh, sorry, better tasting, and seven of you said that biscuit B was better tasting. Biscuit B was the organic biscuit. So in both cases, although this is not a scientific poll, you chose the non-organic alternative. So whether we could say that our evidence certainly doesn't bear out the fact that organic food is better tasting. There would be all sorts of reasons for that, not least because many organic products do not have shorter and speedier local supply chains. Whereas previously, you might have an image in your mind of a housewife, uh, sorry, a farmer taking their food to market, perhaps in a horse and cart, a little basket over their arm. In fact, it's probably been flown from Kenya. Uh, it's been sitting on the supermarket shelf for quite a long time, and, and that too has affected its taste. Um, okay, let's move on very quickly. Part of a circular economy with plant and animal wastes and nutrients returned directly to the soil. Again, that's what we think of. And in fact, I think this one probably is largely true. Reference has already been made to the use of natural animal wastes as fertilisers in organic production systems. It's an inherent part of what we call a circular economic model where food waste is minimised and waste agricultural product is returned to the soil, which preserves nutrients and recycles them and so on. Um, now, I could go into details of particular nutrients. Nit nitrates are very interesting uh, in that regard and something I have a, an interest in. Um, nitrates, though, are problematic. Now, nitrates are widely used in non-organic farming. They come these days largely from artificial uh, or synthetic sources. In the past, they would have come only from animal manures and, and, uh, and from mined um, fossil uh, bird waste, in fact. Um, but they're, they're very problematic in, in uh, excessive concentrations, and it's in conventional farming where we tend to get those excessive concentrations. We tend to get uh, toxic algal booms associated with high nitrate levels in watercourses and lakes, and ecological problems, and then increasing water treatment costs if the water's going to be drunk somewhere further downstream. Now, we do manage that in this country. We have something called nitrogen-sensitive zones around susceptible watercourses. But it's not a good idea to have excessive nitrate applications, because not only because of that, but also because it, it enriches the soil and can damage native flora and fauna and reduce biodiversity. And thirdly, actually, nitrates have been alleged to be toxic to human health if present in high concentrations in food, and there are um, World Health Organization's concerns about that, although it's very contested. Now, organic production, by contrast, tends to uh, 
maintain nitrate levels with fallow or nitrogen-fixing crops and reduces the need for artificial nitrate additions and keeps more constant and low levels of nitrates. So there is a sense there, together with the lower concentrations of nitrates in organic food, that they are better for human health. So by and large, organic farming is part of a circular economy uh, and has nutrients returned to the soil, but they're not often returned directly to the soil. Organic food is taken hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles, so whereas they may be returned to the soil, it may not be local. And of course, conventional farming is now also returning food waste to the soil by using techniques such as anaerobic digestion, um, where food waste is processed to generate energy and the residual is put back into the soil. So that statement, it's not a myth, but it may be applying equally to all forms of agriculture. I'm going to deal very quickly with some of these. Is it better for animal welfare? No antibiotics. Well, yes, stocking rates for certified organic animal husbandry are lower. Fewer animals per square he per hectare and the use of antibiotics is usually prohibited. So that should perhaps improve animal well, um, well-being or animal welfare, although one has to think about what happens then to sick animals who can't be treated with antibiotics. But in fact, antibiotics are heavily used in some conventional uh, agriculture. And in some parts of the U uh, world, for example, the USA, farmers can buy sacks of antibiotics over the counter without prescription. I I'm drawing a parallel with the gun uh, buying there. Um, and a lot, of a lot of meat in US supermarkets has uh, both antibiotics and resistant bacteria, the equivalent of animal MRSA, in them. In the UK, it's a bit more limited. So the position on antibiotics um, and um, where the, f the freedom to, to behave naturally is part of uh, animal organic livestock standards may have some positive effects on people, the environment and, and livestock, but it's impossible to quantify, actually. It's proved impossible to quantify. That statement was made in, in the year 2000 and it's still true today. Does it damage the environment? Well, preserve biodiversity through heritage breeds, avoiding uh, grant uh, genetically modified organisations and so on. Um, only going to say one thing here, there's a lot one could say about this, but I do want to flag up for you that this is an issue, preserving biodiversity. Um, there was a new study that just came out this month in a peer-refereed journal called PLOS One, which described this area here, which is in Germany, and is actually a nature reserve, and you can see it's next to uh, areas of, of uh, conventional agriculture, it's a nature reserve, and they, over the last 27 years, 76% of the flying insect population has gone. Now, that's despite the fact that that is a nature reserve and that that was attributed to pesticide use and loss of habitat. So its implications of that kind of thing are potentially very serious. Biodiversity has been lost and is being lost. But, by contrast, if all food production were organic, it would almost certainly be necessary to plough up 
additional land and destroy large areas of natural ecosystems because there wouldn't be room for unproductive, in relation to food production, land. Um, figures have been bandied around 6.6 .6 million square miles of wildlife would need to be ploughed up uh, to feed the global population if we didn't use nitrogen, artificial nitrates, for example. That's an area equivalent to the land area of South America. Okay, so there's some problems with that. And in the UK, we would have to plough up, uh, probably, large areas of uplands in Wales, Scotland, the southwest, and so on. Now, the last area that I had was necessary to feed the world sustainably in the long term. Organic food is necessary to be sustainable. Now, I'm going to cut this very short because we're running out of time, but by and large, the world is not short of food we actually uh, have struggle with the distribution impacts of this. And industrialised food production systems, including nitrates, have fed millions and millions of people who could not have been fed before. The evidence on yields is highly contested. Uh, very little evidence of direct comparisons of the same species, the same land area, um, the same soil type and so on, comparing organic and non-organic. But the evidence is still out. And I don't think it's possible to say that only organic farming could feed the world sustainably in the long term. Now, in conclusion, some of you will recall Diana, uh, designer Vivian Westwood's controversial statement in 2014, perhaps. She said, people who couldn't afford to eat organic food should just eat less. Now, for many, it might be good for me, but in, for many, that's not an option. Organic farming is sometimes presented as a sort of holy grail to the problems of food scarcity and environmental damage. But I think... Any benefits, actually, in countries such as the UK and, or Canada are actually rather marginal because yields typically are between uh, maybe a quarter lower than under conventional farming. The ecological and environmental benefits of organic agriculture diminish as more land will need to be brought into production. That leaves aside the issues of taste. I would accept the results of that, which has come out of very recent 2017 research from the University of British Columbia, did a huge analysis of publications, I would accept that as a reasonable synthesis. So it's not a lie, that it's not a misrepresentation, it's the best available scientific evidence. So whilst we might welcome organic fooding, uh, food and farming as adding pressure on in conventional farming to reduce its inputs, of fertilisers and so on, and to pay attention to other environmental issues as well, we won't, in my view, be able to feed ourselves for the future if we demand solely organic produce. And nor would that actually, be, in my view, be advisable for other reasons, particularly, for example, for carbon uh, generation, atmospheric carbon generation. There was a very interesting article in the Observer newspaper four or five days ago about a Dutch egg producer who claimed that his non-organic productions were not only environmentally sensitive and attentive to animal welfare issues, but carbon neutral. Now, I won't go into how he did that, but it wasn't organic, but it was a very satisfactory means of production, and he was part of a local economy 
and his chickens ate, interestingly, mainly local bakery waste, broken biscuits and such like. The article didn't say if they were organic. Thank you.